0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for an Advent season, a reminder of your great love for us. That you did not abandon us to our own devices but came to rescue us from ourselves out of your great kindness and love towards us. Help us, Lord, as we work through the book of Ruth to see the connections to this Christmas story, Lord, and to celebrate the goodness of our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I, gotta have, I have a question for you all. Again, I want, I want feedback. What is the best romance movie of all times? What's the best romance movie of all times? Or your favorite romance movie of all times? What is it? About Time? About time? Okay, never heard of it. All right. Braveheart. Okay. All right. Good. Good. I like the way you're thinking. Who else? What else? The Princess Bride. Bride. Ooh, that's a good one. Come on, give me one more. What is it? Wally. 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 Okay, Wally. All right. There we go. Um, Well, just so you know, you all are wrong. Um, The greatest romance movie of all times is Rocky IV, and. The reason why we know Rocky IV is the greatest romance movie of all times is because just a few weeks ago, we firmly established unanimously that Rocky IV is the greatest movie of all times. And simply by association, that means it's the greatest romance movie of all times, right? I mean, what girl's heart does not melt when bloodied Rocky cries out, Adrian, right? I mean, I know your heart melts because it's such a wonderful romantic movie. Romance movies are often called chick flicks, as you probably know. And I was introduced to chick flicks when I started dating my wife. And I uh, I said, you know, is this is this that one that romance movie where you know there's this couple where they they, these two people that love each other but for some reason they can't come together, but in the end it all works out and they live happily ever after. Is it that romance movie? Of course it is, because that is every romance movie. That's the plot of every romance movie. And uh, whoops. And so. as we, as, as we look at, at romance movies, at chick flicks, and as you think, why is it that, that girls love romance movies so much? And some guys do as well. But why do girls like chick flicks? And I think it's because every woman dreams of a man who will come and love and cherish them, even with all of their annoying habits, which the guys think are quirky and endearing. I think it's because every woman wants someone who will come and sweep them off their feet and will heal their brokenness and take away their loneliness. When we come to the book of Ruth, uh, we, we, are, uh, we come to really one of the most amazing stories, amazingly written stories of all times. And the ESV even calls it the classic romance movie, of, I'm sorry, the classic love story of the Bible which means no matter how romantic Rocky IV is, uh, Ruth might be a better love story than that. And in the end, it points us to the greatest love story, which is found in the Christmas story. Now, as we dive into the book of Ruth, what we will find out that this is a Christmas prequel, that it leads us up to Christmas. But the way that it starts is how most stories start. It doesn't start happy, it starts with sadness and with a lot of brokenness. And so there's a lot here. And so let's go ahead and get started and dig in. First, we read about life's brokenness. Let's look at the first four verses and there is a lot to unpack here. Again, we're in Ruth chapter one, which is page, I don't have the page number, do y'all know? What page is it in the Red Bible? Two, 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 is that right? All right, page two, 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 if you are in the Red Bible. So let's look at verses one through four together. And then we'll unpack it. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, Years. Okay, there is a lot in these first four verses that we have to unpack. A lot of brokenness in this passage that the first readers would have understood that maybe we don't quite understand because we're several thousands of years later. But 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 the first thing we see here is that the book of Ruth happens, as it tells us in verse one, in the days when the judges ruled. That means that this took place before King Saul was anointed and placed as the king of Israel. It happened when. When judges ruled over the people and the Lord God was their king. And so we know it happened before 1050 BC. And what we know about Israel during the time when the judges ruled was that it wasn't pretty. As a matter of fact, look with me the verse right before Ruth 1.1. It's the last verse of the book of Judges. This is the theme verse of the book of Judges. And this is what it says in Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, everyone in Israel, all of the people in the promised land did not do what was right in God's eyes, but they did what was right in their own eyes. It was filled with rape and murder and other atrocities. And so this is the atmosphere of the people of God during the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, everyone was doing right in their own eyes. The second thing that we see in these first few verses of Ruth is that there is a famine in the promised land. Most likely the reason for the famine in the promised land is because it was a heavenly father's discipline on his people to, to warn them to repent and turn back to him, okay? And so he is, he is disciplining his children in the promised land through this fam- famine. The third thing we see is that in, the, in this passage is that Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and two sons go to zo- sojourn in Moab. And others, they went to go travel through Moab, but they ended up staying there for 10 years. Now, we actually have a map of this time, and you can see. I get to use my laser pointer, I remembered it this morning. I'm excited. There's Bethlehem. And so they would have traveled all the way over here and down, probably around 60 miles to get to Moab. Okay. And they went there to sojourn for a little while, but they ended up living there for at least 10 years. Okay. And so a, a travel uh, became a trip became a move. All right, now this would have been worrisome to the original readers of this book of Esther because they knew, sorry Ruth, because they knew that the blessings were to flow to the people of God in the promised land and Moab was outside the promised land. Furthermore, we know that the Moabites uh, had a history of hostility against Israel You can read about it in Numbers 21 and 22 or Judges 3 when they overtook them and the people of Israel served uh, the king of Moab for 18 years. You can read about in Judges 10 when the people of Israel started to worship the gods of Moab. But there was a tension between these people. They were adversarial to one another. And so for all of these reasons, there are major concerns that this family is moving to Moab. The fourth thing that we read in these first four verses is that the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi married Moabite women. Now, there is a chance they were trying to flirt to convert, uh, but probably not. And it was forbidden in the Old Testament to marry people who worshiped other gods because what the Lord warns is that when that happens, you tend to go and chase after those other gods. We see this even in the life of Solomon who marries women from other, uh, uh, other religions and they're worshiping other gods and then he ends up chasing after those gods and it leads to destruction within the kingdom. And so that is another concern that we see in this passage. And then finally, the fifth layer of brokenness that we read about here. Uh, is that they are in this foreign land with foreign gods, with foreign customs, with foreign people, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And so in these first four verses, there is a lot of rebellion and brokenness. There is famine, there is desertion of the promised land, there is intermarriage, and there is even death. But then it gets worse in verse 5. Verse 5 says, both Malone, Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Something interesting about this verse in the original Hebrew, the, the term for sons is Yaled. And that term Yaled is describing, in the rest of the Old Testament, it's used to describe small children not grown men. And so in this passage, what the author is trying to communicate is that Naomi just lost her babies. Yes, they were grown men, but they were her boys. And now they were gone. I can't think of a situation that is sadder, more broken than Naomi's situation. You know, it is, it's sad when someone who is old passes away. It is, it's sad when a spouse dies. But I don't know if there's anything sadder than when a child dies before their parents. Many of us experienced this not so long ago as we, as we grieved together over the passing of Emmerich. And, and, and we mourned together and we cried together because there is something so extremely sad when a child dies before their parents. And so you could imagine being in Naomi's shoes... She's in a foreign country, again, with foreign people, foreign customs, foreign gods. Everything is very foreign to her. Her husband has died, but now both of her children has died. Everyone in her family has died. And here she is in this foreign territory. And to make matters worse, Naomi was now destined for a life of poverty, You see, she didn't have parents to go back to. She was too old. She didn't have parents to go to take care of her. She didn't have a husband to take care of her. She didn't have sons to take care of her. And so now she was left to a life of destitution and poverty. This is the brokenness of the world that she was living in. Verse 6 continues. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. So Naomi is starting this journey back to Bethlehem with her two daughters-in-law, and as she is journeying with them, she is realizing that there is no hope, there is no future for her or for them if they go back to Bethlehem. And so she tells them to go back to their people, so that they might have a chance of getting married, so they might have a chance of having kids, so they might have a chance of security. Verse eight continues. And she says, May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. You know, it's so interesting, even in the midst of the brokenness of her life and her overwhelming sorrow, Naomi pronounces this benediction of sorts upon her two daughter-in-laws. And what is so interesting about this passage, as we'll study the chapter as a whole, is that Naomi doesn't send them away and say, may your gods bless you. She sends them away and says, may the Lord show you kindness meaning that even in the pit of despair, even in the midst of extreme brokenness, Naomi recognizes there is only one true God, only one place that blessings come from. And so she prays that the Lord would show kindness to them. But Naomi doesn't believe that the Lord will show his kindness to her. As we read on, we will see. She believes kindness for other people the kindness of the Lord for others, but she does not believe the kindness of Lord for herself. I'm curious if you could relate. Do you believe in the grace of God to be sufficient for others, but somehow lacking for you? Do you believe in God's unconditional love is boundless for others, but not for you? Do you believe that God's forgiveness is expansive enough for others, but not for you? Naomi can relate. Verse nine continues. And it says, "'Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, "'and said to her, "'We will go back with you to your people. "'But Naomi said, "'Return home, my daughters. "'Why would you come with me? "'Am I going to have any more sons "'who could become your husbands? "'Return home, my daughters. "'I am too old to have another husband. "'Even if I thought there was still hope for me, "'even if I had a husband tonight.'" And then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi knew her situation was hopeless. And she said, don't come with me because God has turned against me. Naomi had left Bethlehem with a husband and two boys in optimism, and she was going back with none of that. And so she says, go back to where you came from. She's overwhelmed by the brokenness of life. I'm curious, what brokenness do you come here with today? It was Thanksgiving. As Molly pointed out, oftentimes that highlights the brokenness in our families, doesn't it? It reminds us of family members who have passed away. It reminds us of family members who have abandoned us. Or simply family members who get on our nerves. Like Naomi, all of us experience the brokenness of this world. We have experienced brokenness, and we do experience brokenness. Sometimes because of our sin, but sometimes simply because we live in a fallen and broken world. Now here's the question. What do we do with this brokenness? Well, one option that we'll see that Naomi takes is the path of bitterness. Look with me in verse 13, midway through. She says, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept out aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi believed again that Ruth And Orpah still had a future if they stayed in their own land. But the blindness of bitterness doesn't allow her to see the hope that would come by going into the promised land. Naomi believes that if they follow her back to Bethlehem for all intents and purposes, their life will be over. See, in Moab, there is seemingly everything to gain. And with Naomi, there is seemingly nothing to gain. And that's what makes Ruth's response to Naomi so overwhelmingly beautiful. Look at verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. These are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture Some of the most beautiful communication of commitment and unconditional love that we will find anywhere in any type of literature. And yet Naomi seems completely unresponsive to it, as if it means nothing to her. And the reason for this is because Naomi is blinded by her bitterness. Verse 19 continues, it says, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman excla- and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Again, imagine you are residents of Bethlehem. Naomi and her family left a decade ago. With, she left with a husband, with two kids, and a lot of optimism. And she comes back and she is completely defeated. It's 10 years later, and she is barely even recognizable. They say, can this be Naomi? Because she's been so overwhelmed by grief and by brokenness. And she comes back with this foreigner, Ruth, who is maybe even a symbol of her disobedience to the Lord. Verse 20 says, she says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. The name Naomi means pleasant. And she says, don't call me pleasant anymore because that's no longer descriptive of me. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Bitterness now defines me, she says. Bitterness describes me. Bitterness drives me. She is a woman overcome by bitterness because of the brokenness of her situation. Verse 21 continues. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I'm curious, how would you define bitterness? As I thought about that this week, it's it's almost like just something that you know in your heart and your soul when you're bitter, if you're being honest with yourself. But, but bitterness is a resentfulness. It's to be consumed with past hurts and hatred towards those who cause those hurts upon you. September 12th, 2009, sports writer Larry Brown writes this. The title of his article is, Michael Jordan delivers bitter speech at Hall of Fame enshrinement. His article goes on and says, Michael Jordan has won six NBA championships, six final MVPs, and five MVP awards. He's widely regarded as the best basketball player of all time, and he's still one of the most well-known athletes globally. In addition to sheer talent, most people already recognize that much of Jordan's accomplishments are a credit to his stellar work ethic, competitive drive, and desire to win. Apparently, Michael doesn't think that's the case. All you had to do was see his Hall of Fame speech to know the guy still had a lot of bitterness to get off his chest. MJ turned his speech into a roast, taking down everyone and anyone on his hit list of perceived slights. He may be the greatest player of all time, but instead he's now coming off as a bitter old man. You see, bitterness is such an interesting thing because bitterness is enslaving. Bitterness is a powerful poison that sucks the joy out of even the most delightful events. Here is this guy who is supposed to be, you know, one of the greatest days of his life and it into a hall of fame, and yet he is so overcome and so consumed with bitterness. Bitterness is the poison you drink hoping the other person dies. Bitterness is toxic and it permeates our hearts and our relationships. Let me ask, who do you struggle with bitterness against? Maybe it is a father or a mother, maybe a coworker or a boss. I don't want to get in trouble with this, but Just as I've pastored over the past 10 years and I've interacted with women in the church, one of the things that I found is that a lot of women are very bitter at their husbands because their husbands have done things that have hurt them. A lot of men are bitter towards their fathers because of the ways that they have failed them. All of us struggle with bitterness towards someone. Who do you struggle with bitterness towards? Ephesians 4 tells us, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all mouths. And then here's the secret. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. According to Ephesians 4, the reason you are bitter is because you have not forgiven the person as God has forgiven you. Bitterness is an enslaving resentfulness that can be directed at anyone and everyone, even at God. And that's what we see here in the case of Naomi. She says, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What if Like Naomi, your bitterness is against God. What if you're bitter against God because life has not turned out the way you want it to? You don't have the job you want, the family you want, the husband you want, the wife you want, the kids you want. What if you are bitter against God? How do you get over that bitterness? Because we don't forgive God. God's never made a mistake. That's how we get rid of bitterness against others is we forgive others as as God has forgiven us in Christ. But how do we get over bitterness against God? And that's what brings us to our final point. And so just to recap before we get there, we all live in a very broken world. And we have a choice of what we do with that brokenness. And one path, one choice is bitterness. But through forgiveness, we can, we can get over bitterness towards others. But how do we get over bitterness towards God? And that's by dwelling on God's benevolence or kindness Kindness is a major theme in the book of Ruth, but it's our natural inclination not to dwell on God's kindness, but to dwell on what is wrong with our situation. I mean, all you have to do is look at your prayer life or the prayer life of anyone or the prayer life of your community group. When you come together and you offer prayer, is, is it often you know, overwhelmed with prayer requests of everything that you want changed in your world? It's okay to have those prayer requests, but where are the prayers of thanksgiving? They're few and far between. And the reason for that is because we are so focused on what is wrong with the world that we forget to look and to observe the kindness of God that is all around us. For example, as I read through Ruth chapter one. All I saw in my first read through Ruth chapter one was brokenness and bitterness. I saw disobedience and death and destruction. What I did not see because it is not the natural heart of man is the kindness of God throughout Ruth chapter one. But if we look closely, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation is, we will see the kindness of God. And that's evident even here in Ruth chapter one. So let's look through Ruth one again and see the kindness of God. First verse, Six says when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from. There, I don't know if you see it, but do you see the kindness of God, the grace of God, the benevolence of God? Here is a people that are doing right in their own eyes, and yet God does not give up on them. God does not forsake them. God does not abandon them to starvation, but the Lord comes and he provides for them food. This is called grace. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, "Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me." Naomi is a woman who abandoned the promised land, who gave her children over to marry uh, uh, people of, of a foreign nation that that did not worship the Lord God. And yet, even in the midst of her rebellion, the Lord was kind to her. He brought her two daughter-in-laws that were kind to her sons and kind to her again—a sign of God's grace. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Again, Moab offered Ruth the American dream. A husband, kids, comfort, security. But going with Naomi offered her one thing that Moab could not. It offered her a community of people who worshiped the Lord. And so Ruth decides to go with Naomi to experience the blessing and the kindness of the Lord. Commentators agree that in Ruth 1.16, it's a profession of faith by Ruth. It's her conversion story. She is trading her gods and say, I will worship your God. She's trading her people and say, I will be with your people, the people of God. She's trading Moab to go into the promised land. And she says, I will stay in the promised land until I die. It is the kindness and benevolence and grace of God that through the rebellion of Elimelech and Naomi and their boys, that God has revealed himself to Ruth and drawn, him, drawn her to himself. Verse 17, she says, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death, rate, death separates you and me. <clears throat> Again, Ruth's statement to Naomi is one of the most moving statements in all of scripture between two people. So much so that it's used at weddings, right? People will say these things at weddings. And yet Naomi seems completely unmoved by her devotion, by Ruth's devotion to her. Naomi's bitterness is blinding her from spying out the benevolent kindness of God. And this is evident when we go down to verse 21. Naomi is there with the townspeople. And this is what she says to them. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Imagine if you're there in the town square with Naomi and and Ruth. And Naomi says, you know what? The Lord has taken me away full, but he has brought me back empty. He's brought me back with nothing. What must Ruth be feeling at that moment? (laughs) she must be saying, what am I? Chopped liver, right? Like who has two thumbs, just gave their life Jesus and devoted her entire life to you? This girl, right? And yet Naomi says, the Lord has brought me back empty. I have nothing. She is blinded by her bitterness to the kindness of God in her situation. And then we get to verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You see, the barley harvest would be a time where God would feed his people, but not only the farmers, he would feed the poor. As he made provisions for the extras to be left out for the poor, to, to gather those so that they too could eat and feast on the blessings of God. And so we see throughout this chapter, the Lord is kind, the Lord is kind, the Lord is kind, the Lord is kind, but his kindness is blinded by the bitterness in Naomi's heart. I listened to a a sermon this week by C.J. Mahaney, and he puts it so well. It's a little bit longer of a quote, but he says it better than I can. He says this, The book of Ruth teaches us that God is at work during the worst of times but bitterness blinds us to his work. He goes on to say the book of Ruth is a gift. It's a gift to those suffering severely. It's a gift to those suffering chronically because it's meant to give us sight. It's meant to give us sight in our suffering so we might perceive God's kindness in our suffering. It's meant to protect us from the powerful effects of bitterness that blind us to the kindness of God because even in the worst of times, God is kind. But we must work. Oh my, we must work at perceiving these kindnesses for if we don't, we will only be aware of that which is painful and perplexing and we will be vulnerable to bitterness and its blinding effects. So we must be intentional, particularly in suffering, about surveying our lives, of studying our lives for evidences of God's kindness in our lives. He goes on to say the Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way, a gracious heart spies mercy in every condition. A gracious heart spies mercy mercy in every condition. Watson Good go on to write, our tendency is to pour over our losses rather than ponder our mercies. And he says, our hearts are more discontent at one loss than they are thankful for a hundred mercies. I don't know about you, but I see this in my own life. I'm so quick to identify what's wrong in the world, what's wrong with my life, what is hard, what is difficult, and yet I am saturated in the kindness of God, but I am blinded to it all of the time because I do not spy it out. What would it look like for us to be people of thanksgiving, people who are overwhelmed by by seeing the kindness of God in our lives? Wouldn't it drive out the bitterness in our hearts and our souls? Wouldn't it make us people of great joy regardless of the situation? C.J. Mahaney goes on. He says, "Now we did not have a gracious heart. She had a bitter heart. Therefore, she did not spy mercy in her condition. She was only aware of loss. The Lord has sent me back empty. In suffering, we are all tempted to be preoccupied with loss, but we must learn to spy mercy, to spy mercy in every condition, for mercy is present in every condition. Listen close. The reason we are bitter is not because of others. It is not because of our spouse or our children or our parents or our boss or our coworker or our neighbors. Our bitterness is not because of other people. Our bitterness is because of us. If you are bitter towards others, it is because you have refused to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, but it's also because you have, you have failed to spy out the kindness of God in every situation. Let me prove this to you. Michael Jordan was so successful that some of you here probably have his silhouette emblazed on your shoes or on your coat. Certainly you do at home. It's amazing, there'll be, there'll be football games with his with his silhouette emblazed on their jerseys. It's the wrong sport, but that's how famous this guy got. He was the greatest basketball player of all time, something that almost every kid dreams of. And yet, bitterness blinded him from seeing the tremendous blessings of God, and he ended up being a very bitter person. But on the flip side, this week I emailed the Boemers to ask if I could I could share about Emmerich's death because I I just want to be careful with those things. And I said, don't worry, I'll also talk about the kindness of God in in, in, in the book in Ruth chapter one. And this was their response. Dan, thanks for asking. Yes, that is fine. I love the tie into God's steady kindness. He is capitalized, abundant in loving kindness, amen. And he has worked in so many good ways through Emmerich's passing. Why is it that one of the greatest basketball players of all times, one of the richest men in the world is consumed with bitterness and yet parents who held their child as he passed away overflow with thanksgiving for the kindness of God. It's because bitterness is not a result of our circumstance. Bitterness does not, is not someone else's fault. Rather, bitterness is a result of our failure to spy out the kindness of God in every situation. But here's the good news. If you come today and you are broken and you are bitter, you can spy out the kindness of God because God delights to pour out his kindness on bitter and broken people. And so you must spy out the kindness of God. Let me end with this. Let me end with a Christmas connection. I wanna try to do this throughout every sermon in the book of Ruth. But there is another uh, a treasure of God's kindness that is found throughout chapter one uh, that maybe the original readers did not understand to the extent that we can. And, and that treasure of kindness that is woven throughout Ruth chapter one is a uh, is name of a city. The name Bethlehem. It's a reminder to us that even in the midst of a broken world that God is kind. Because many years later, God would bring another unmarried woman to Bethlehem. And when she came to town, it too caused a great stir, but not amongst the townspeople, amongst shepherds, because angels were in the fields singing in delight, saying, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is the city of Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This baby, this Christ would come from the line of Ruth, and this baby would be the Savior of the world, because at the cross he drank the bitter, bitter, bitter cup of God's wrath for our sin so that we could experience through his resurrection the kindness of God in salvation every day of our life and for all eternity. Christians, we live in in, in a broken world. We have broken lives, broken families, broken schools, broken workplaces. It's your choice what to do with that brokenness. It can either drive you to bitterness or you can forgive others as Christ has forgiven you and spy out the kindness of God in every situation of life. Let's pray. Lord God, I come today just confessing and I think others would agree that we are like whining children who, who, who don't realize all that you are doing for us, who don't realize your grace to us every second of every day, who drive past a sunset and yawn and don't give thanks for your grace to us, who are, we are people who have been redeemed, who have been saved from the the perils of hell. And yet we forget to give thanks for that day in and day out, Lord, because we are so focused on what is wrong with the world and it turns into bitterness. And so God, help us by your Holy Spirit to forgive those who have hurt us, Lord. We don't want to minimize it, God, but grant us that extreme grace of forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. And then Lord, help us to be spies, Help us to spy out your kindness no matter how hard the circumstance so that we might be a thankful people, a joyful people, a happy people, a people who glorifies their God who is so kind to them. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.